And Father, please speak to us now through your word that we may grow in confidence and assurance and stand firm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Christian Education Association provides Christian studies to the local high schools. We've been doing this since 1984 and for most of that time our ministry has been gladly received by the schools, the families and the community. Even if students were not particularly religious, they were happy to participate and at least hear what the teacher had to say. But in the last two years, the environment has changed significantly and I shared that while speaking with John earlier during the service. The government is under pressure from lobby groups to remove scripture from schools entirely. Such groups question the place place of organisations like ours being allowed to teach in a secular education system. They claim that our teaching is dogmatic and potentially damaging. They say, how do you think children feel when you tell them that they are guilty before God and have offended him? Of course, that's only part of the story. They don't focus on the part about what God has done about that. But they say, what sort of damage do you think that is doing? On his website, New South Wales Greens Senator Dr David Kay says, there are too few hours in the crowded school week to waste the time of public school students on scripture. That's a senator from the New South Wales Senate. He has attacked our very organisation, Pennant Hills, Cherry Brook Christian Education Association, and said that we hold children captive to our message and the school is effectively being used as a missionary institution where every student was force-fed a diet of evangelical religion. That's what he said about our association publicly. So this is what happens. You give generously to Christian studies and support it in prayer. We invest voluntary hours and our teachers provide a quality program in the schools. This as far as we are concerned, is a service to our community, but it's clearly not appreciated by everyone in our community and that is having a drastic impact on our ministry at the two schools. It's not just concerning scripture, is it? This is a general uh, change in our community at large. More people are identifying themselves as being non-religious. It's quite plain to see. In 2011, 22% of Australians picked no religion on the census form and this compares to 13% in 1986. That is an extraordinary shift in the Australian population in such a short time, 1986. It was only yesterday, wasn't it, John? I remember 1986, I was a young boy. Only yesterday. But it's changed so much in that time. You can't deny it. There is a growing mistrust of any religion in Australia, not just Christianity. Religion is seen as the cause of terrorism, 
Faith is seen as weak and unreasonable. If it can't be proved by science, then it shouldn't be trusted. Christians are no longer seen as irrelevant and to be ignored. We are increasingly on the nose and opposed. As opposition for our message mounts, it's easy to lose confidence. Is our message dangerous? Should we tone it down and make our message perhaps more palatable? Perhaps we should avoid talking about sin, guilt and judgement and focus more on the positive aspects of the Gospel. The letter to the Hebrews was written to instil confidence in believers. The original readers started strong but with time and pressure from others outside they were in danger of shrinking back. I think um, Hebrews 10 verse 32 gives us a really good indication of what the pastoral environment uh, that the writer was writing to was. He says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution and at other times you stood side by side those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. The original readers, they started so strong, they were willing to suffer for Christ and you would think with time that they would only get stronger as they were fed the word of God and grew spiritually. But that's not what happened. With increasing persecution, they were at risk of throwing away their confidence, shrinking back. God does not just want us to know that we are saved. He wants us to know how we are saved so that we will be confident in that salvation. He doesn't just want us to believe. He wants us to believe boldly. Hebrews is written to show the superiority of Jesus so that the readers would grow in assurance and not throw away their confidence. Hebrews will argue that Jesus is the superior high priest who made a superior sacrifice and that the new covenant which he inaugurated is the superior covenant. But today we've only got time for one lesson on superiority and that's the beginning of the letter. It begins by arguing that Jesus is a superior revelation from God. So the first lesson of Hebrews is that God speaks. If you have some Bibles, if you could open them up and look there at Hebrews chapter 1. If you brought your Bible with you, you can look there. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. We probably have different translations, but mine says in verse 1, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Some may be shocked by the thought that God speaks to his people. 
we see that God is not otherworldly, out of touch with us. He desires for us to know him and his mind. We are not left to guess what this is or to draw conclusions from nature. He tells us. God has spoken in the past and he speaks to us today. It is a very powerful thing to know what God says and to be able to quote him. His word trumps every other opinion and advice. And his communication with us has been strong. Think of how key communication is in relationships. It is important for husbands and wives, for parents and children and for employers and employees. Whenever communication breaks down, you can rest assured that marriages will break up, children will hate their parents and uh, organisations will begin to fail. You, uh, we often, sometimes we find in our family that communication is breaking down and it's time to have some meals together and to stop and to family conference so we can know what's on each of our minds and hearts. In order to relate to God... God must speak and we must hear. In the past, God spoke through the prophets. The prophet was considered the mouth of God. His prophecies were not considered his own but God's. Various means were used by God to speak. The Lord spoke to Moses in a burning bush. He later spoke to him in the Sinai wilderness in thunder and lightning from the mountain. Elijah heard a whisper, Ezekiel had visions and Daniel had dreams. Haggai preached sermons. Malachi would ask questions and answer them himself. (laughs) Ezekiel performed strange dramas like cooking bread over human excrement. Lovely, that one. Hosea demonstrated God's message by marrying a prostitute, an unfaithful woman. All of these were means by which God spoke to his people. Talk about various, talk about variety and the Lord would make promises, he'd give law, he'd warn against disobedience, he restores and he gives hope. You cannot read the scriptures and conclude that God is silent or doubt the variety of his communication. But the variety is over. Look there at verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. These last days, the days before God's final judgment, God speaks to us through his son alone. Jesus is the final prophet and his message is the final message for all to hear. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's a story that Jesus tells about a landowner who had a vineyard and it was rented out to farmers. And he sent a servant to go and collect the rent, the money that was owed, but the tenants refused to pay. They seized the servant, they beat him and they killed him. So the landlord sent another and another and another and the tenants killed them all. Not your best tenants. Then the landowner decided to get serious. He sent his son. He thought surely the farmers would respect his son and pay the money that they owed. 
The owner considered his son the ultimate authority. The servant spoke on his behalf, but his son, his son was his own flesh and blood. Think of the authority. Rather than respect him, the farmers said to each other, this is the heir, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they kicked him out and they killed him. Jesus then said, how do you think the owner would respond? He will give the tenants the justice that they deserve. He'll kick them off and he'll get new tenants. What does this mean? Well, surely it's not a lesson on property management. I would suggest that the landlord let it get too far and should have enacted the New South Wales Tenancy Act a long time ago. It was a parable of how the Lord had sent messengers to his people and how his people rejected his message and killed the messengers. And it shows how the son is the final messenger, the ultimate in authority, and think of the consequences of killing him. The irony of the story is that the Jewish leaders knew that he was talking about them so that they wanted, arrest, wanted to arrest him so, he could, so that they could kill him. They unwittingly behaved exactly like the tenants in the story. The son is the last and most authoritative messenger. Rejection of the prophets was bad enough, but the only thing left after rejection of the son is a judgment. These are the last days. The message of God's son is the last warning. Hebrews then gives four reasons why the Son is the ultimate revelation from God, why he is superior to the angels. Why compared to the angels? Well, the angels were authoritative messengers. The word angelos means quite literally messenger. The job of the angel was to bring God's word and the writer gives three reasons why the Son is superior to the angels. Firstly, the Son is the creator and eventual owner of the universe. Secondly, the Son is the ultimate glory of God. And thirdly, he is the, in the ultimate position of authority. I'll go through those one by one. Firstly, the Son is the creator and the eventual owner of the entire universe. Look there at verse 2. He has spoken through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Jesus is not only God's Son, but his heir the highest ranking son, the one who will eventually possess all that the father has. And in verse 5 here, the writer quotes Psalm 2, which is a psalm about a king who was also God's son. The writer says this psalm was speaking about the son of God. This psalm was speaking about the son of God, Jesus. You are my son, today I have become your father, verse 5. And the surprise here is that the Son made the universe. uh, Many do not realise that. The Son, the Son of God is the creator. We know that from Colossians 1, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. All things were created through and for him. As creator, his word is ultimate and should be listened to. 
the Bible writers were very careful to ensure that people don't mix up the creator with the created. That's when idolatry comes into play. Yet here in verse 6, the writer quotes from the law, let all God's angels worship him. It is uh, particularly important to ensure that creation is not attributed to the wrong God or to a person. Yet Hebrews has no fear in leading us to believe that the Son is the Creator and is to be worshipped. If the Son was a man only, the writer would be far more careful about the language that he used because he wouldn't want people to worship a man, a man alone. He would have reserved this language for God and God alone. Only God is Creator. Well, guess what? Meet the Son, the Creator of the universe. Secondly, the Son is the ultimate glory of God. Verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. It's hard to believe that there's ever been a debate about the divinity of the Son with passages like this. Yet during centuries, church council after church, sorry, church council after church council during the first centuries debated this issue, asking, "Is the Son of God? Is the Son God? And in what way?" Well, the writer here says, "He's the radiance of God's glory." God's glory was his presence. People would, uh, could not see God but they would uh, witness his effects, a pillar of fire or a cloud of smoke and the writer goes a step further. He says the sun is the exact representation of God's being. The word here that's been translated representation is, is quite literally the word caricature. It's where you get the word caricature from. Usually when you see a caricature, you see a likeness. However, here is the exact likeness of God's nature. There is nothing that represents God's being more than his son. In the Old Testament, God's glory would come when he was about to speak. It was an arresting glory, stopping people in their tracks and demanding their full attention. The son demands people's attention. And thirdly, he is in the ultimate position of authority, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 3, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. (coughs) What position is the son in now? He is seated. He is no longer in transit and he's in his final resting place. Where? At the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is in a special place in heaven. There is no more prestigious seat. A king rules seated on his throne. It's the place of authority and the son rules his kingdom. Verse 8, once again the writer used the Psalms to make his point. I hope you can see that what's spoken about here in the first four verses of Hebrews is um, uh, uh, scattered throughout the whole chapter. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, but about the Son he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever 
a righteousness, uh, a righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. So we he- see here that the Son rules in righteousness eternally. Flick forward to chapter 10, you'll see that Christ's own blood was shed for the pur- purification of sin. His blood cleanses our guilt and sin. That's why you have to speak about sin and guilt so that we understand exactly why Jesus died. It wasn't in vain. We must understand the problem that God was solving before we can understand the solution. Christ's death was the final sacrifice to take away the sins of many. What then? We read there in Hebrews chapter 10, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. <coughs> this is the position of finality, it's job done. The cross was the pathway to ultimate glory. Christ is Lord, his word is the ultimate authority and is he proved authentic by Jesus' death and his subsequent glorification. You can imagine how arresting it would be if an angel spoke to you. How would that be? An angel speaks to you. I think you'd listen. Well, now God speaks to us in a far superior way through his Son. So what should we do about it? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Quite simple there, isn't it? We must pay more careful attention. We must pay more careful attention attention in his son we learn of God's character and his plan you will not get a clearer word if there were consequences to ignoring God in the past when he spoke through the prophets imagine the consequences of ignoring him when he speaks through his son if God speaks We must listen. There's your application. If God speaks, we must listen. When I was at school, a long time ago, we had two types of teachers. Perhaps you have them at schools now. There were those who could make the class listen and there were those that couldn't. The ones that couldn't make the students listen were considered pitiful. They would shout, bang the desk, threaten, go red in the face but the more they did this, the more they demonstrated that they had no control over the class and no one respected them. You might have felt sorry for them but you didn't respect them. On the other hand, there were those who could demand attention. I don't know what it was but it was with a word, a look and sometimes just utter silence. These teachers had a presence and authority that would make everyone stop and listen. It was sort of like a magic. At the transfiguration, Jesus was on the mountain and he began to shine and uh, the two prophets, Moses and Elijah, appeared on either side of him. Moses and Elijah were prophets, the mouthpiece of God. But what was the message from the cloud? The message from the cloud was, this is my son whom I love and am well pleased. Listen to him. God demands that we listen to Jesus. 
It's interesting, isn't it, that more and more people are trying to convince us that our message is inferior, that it's not based on reason or science, that we're wasting students' time, that time would be better spent doing maths, English, science or uh, drama. And some would say that our message is psychologically damaging, leaving students guilt-ridden. They claim to know better. They claim to be concerned about the students, but we're only concerned with recruitment, they say. And in the face of such criticism, it's easy to shrink back and to lose confidence. We must never lose confidence. We have the most authoritative word of God, superior in all ways. God has spoken to us through his Son. Therefore, we are not the ones who should shrink back and cower. When we teach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are on solid ground. Eventually, God will be proved right along with those who put their faith in Jesus. Surely, There must be a place in our public schools for the most superior and authoritative word, the message of life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You may be criticised as another religious nut, an extremist, but in God's eyes, when you teach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are on the side of truth. Now is not the time to shrink back, but to step forward. I've been convicted about this on a personal level as well. I was feeling that I was going sort of quiet in my evangelism. I'm prepared to speak boldly from the pulpit but not so much in my everyday conversation. Am I willing to speak in a confident way about the hope that I have in Jesus Christ? And so recently I've been praying, Lord, make me a better personal evangelist. I've been amazed as I started to pray about that, uh, the, the number of opportunities that I've had. Partly it's because God is giving me those opportunities but partly it's because he's helping me to reorientate my mind and to think when I'm speaking with someone, hey, here's an opportunity. I now talk with people and I'm looking for ways to introduce my faith in Jesus Christ. Let's be honest, there is a comfort barrier that we need to break It can feel awkward but opportunities abound and often we just need to take the step. I can't say that people have always responded in thankfulness. They haven't said, oh, that's really good, Gav, tell us more. But it's still evangelism whether people accept it or not. You are not called to convert people, that's the job of the Holy Spirit. You are simply called to grow in confidence in the gospel and to use the opportunities given to you wherever you find yourself in everyday encounters. In his uh, book, Honest Evangelism, Rico Tice writes, What is successful witnessing? It's not someone becoming a Christian, it's someone hearing about Christ. It's not you winning the argument, having all the answers or giving an eloquent speech, it's you preaching Christ. That's it, job done, regardless of the response. God has spoken in a way that outstrips any way he has spoken in the past 
His word to us is in the Son, it's more authoritative, it's superior and it's final. There will never be a more important message. When it came to the Bible, Mark Twain was a bit of a sceptic but he did have some wise sayings. One being, he said, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to pause and reflect. If you believe that God has spoken through his son, you will certainly not be on the side of the majority. You are on the side of a shrinking minority. But you are also on the side of truth and anyone who listens will benefit eternally. So loving Father, we pray that we will grow in confidence about the superiority of your word through Jesus Christ and that we would be bold in our witness, in our witness as an association and in our personal witness as we encounter people on a daily basis. Please go before us, prepare the hearts and minds of those that we speak to, those that we serve and we look forward to the day, Lord, when all is revealed, the truth is revealed and we praise you for speaking to us and giving us your Holy Spirit that we can listen carefully to the Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Knowing that we have the very word of God presented to us most clearly, most fully, and most ultimately in Jesus. Where else do we, where else do the people of the world have to go when it's only in Him that we can have eternal life? We're going to sing and reflect that uh, and reflect upon that now. Please stand.